Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Most listeners are probably familiar with the story of the Andrews Raiders, the daring Union soldiers who infiltrated the South in civilian dress, commandeered a locomotive, tried to drive it back to the North. Fewer may be familiar with the story of Robert Smalls, which is similar except for some key details. He wasn't a soldier, but a Southern civilian. He stole a Confederate steamboat instead of a locomotive. He was enslaved, not free. And he and his team didn't get caught. They succeeded in delivering their prize to the U.S. Navy off Charleston, South Carolina. And that was only the beginning of a remarkable wartime career, as we'll hear from Kate Lineberry, author of Be Free or Die, the amazing story of Robert Small's escape from slavery to Union hero. We'll talk with her tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you. Tonight, from 205 Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Field Annex, because it's so quiet here, uh, all alone, not in my office at East Carolina University, from which the show is not coming tonight, and for which the show does not speak tonight or any night. It's always independent, uh, not related to the university, just coming here with their uh, unwitting support by giving me an office and a computer. And likewise, my guest is not representing anyone else, just speaking for herself. It is indeed quiet here. Uh, my wife, Emily, is off at a uh, meeting of uh, a fellow English department heads in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So she's gone. The girls are off at school or their lives the dogs are in doggy heaven. Uh, that leaves only me and the cat here tonight, so it's very quiet, and uh, that's a good place to do the show. Uh, 
It's quiet everywhere. Nothing, absolutely nothing happened in the world of college football to discuss this past week, so we'll move on from that topic. Uh, Not a darn thing. Uh, Last Thursday, we did go with students from East Carolina to New Bern, North Carolina, site of the Union victory in the spring of 1862, where the local historical society has done a very nice job uh, preserving and marking uh, a portion of that battlefield. Uh, if you're in eastern North Carolina, it's worth uh, uh, spending an hour or two there. Uh, highly worth it. I recommend it. Uh, no other uh, news to report. The local uh, soccer league is back in action, but as, as I've reported here, I'm not participating this year. Had my annual physical this past week, told the doc I was not playing soccer. I need some other competitive exercise. But today I got my uh, blood test results, and it turns out my cholesterol has gone down. All my numbers are good, so I may have 12 months of complete sedentary behavior ahead if I want. Actually, I will not do that. I do miss the opportunity to get out on the field and impose my will on the opposition, hear their cries of despair, or more realistically, uh, try to impose my will, and then afterwards shake hands, say good game. Although... The past season, the other team would always say, good game, sir, to me at the end of the game, which was one clue. It was, it was time to go. On the Civil War Memorial front, topic that has been in the news much lately, this week, here's something we can all agree on, which is, while there are political reasons to discuss the location and content of memorials, it's never appropriate to destroy a memorial just because those in charge don't know what it is and are not willing to pay for it. That's what almost happened to the Memorial and Historical Building in Little Valley, New York, in October 2013. The Cattaraugus County Legislature voted to demolish this building, which had been erected over 100 years ago, uh, to honor the county's Civil War soldiers and sailors. In response to that, a group called CAMP, Citizens Advocating Memorial Preservation, was formed and led by, among others, Mark Dunkelman, who has been on the show, talked about the 154th New York Regiment. He's written about many times. Uh, Mark and others launched a campaign, and I'm delighted to report that as of this month, October of 2017, the county has agreed to sell uh, the Cattaraugus County Civil War Memorial Building to CAMP, the organization that wants to preserve it. So, that's the good news, and now like the dog that chases the car, Camp has the building and they need funding for it. So, if you're one of the many people, and I would say the vast majority of Civil War Talk Radio listeners who has never donated to Civil War Talk Radio, I understand that because the pitch is really not very appealing. I point out that it's not tax deductible and I use it for bourbon, cigars, or uh, whatever, I new pair of soccer shoes back in the day, whatever I want to buy. And I really cannot rid myself of the shame of asking for money to be convincing enough. So, you know, I'm doing all right. I don't really need the money. But I appreciate your donations and your emails especially coming in. as tangible evidence someone is listening. Uh, although, to be fair, Voice America provides that as well. This week's uh, weekly statistical report showed last month we had a new record high, 54,000 hits over the month. So we're doing all right there. But now, here's where this is going, we can take care of two objects with one. Uh, If you 
donate to Civil War Talk Radio, not tax deductible, but go to impedimentsofwar.org, click on the PayPal button, and donate to CivilWarTR at AOL.com. I will sequester your donations for the rest of the year and then send them on to camp, to the uh, Citizens Advocating Memorial Preservation, so they will go directly to the preservation of the Memorial and Historical Building uh, in Cattaraugus County, New York. It's a two-for-one. You get to support a worthy cause, a Civil War preservation cause, and at the same time, by funneling it through the show, show your appreciation for Civil War Talk Radio. I get the warm feeling of knowing that you're listening and the modest tax benefit of being the one who actually makes a tax-deductible donation with other people's money, so I win. Uh, Camp gets the funds. They win. You gave to a good cause. Everybody wins. So if you donate to Civil War Talk Radio through the uh, impedimentsofwar.org website, click on the PayPal button there. Any funding you send between now and the end of 2017, 100% will be channeled on to this preservation effort. A friend of the show, Mark Dunkelman, has has done a great deed in preserving this memorial, and uh, you can participate in that too. While you're at impedimentsofwar.org, you can see where Mark Gaffney, the webmaster, has updated it to show who's going to be on next. Next week, it's Joan Waugh, professor at UCLA. Uh, She and Gary Gallagher have co-written a textbook called The American War, and we'll talk about how you tell the whole war story in a volume short enough for students to read. On the 25th, D.H. Dilbeck, his first book, I believe, called A More Civil War, How the Union Waged a Just War, will be with us. Following that, we've got Carlton Young on the uh, 1st of November. Voices from the Attic is his book, Stories of the Williamstown Boys in the Civil War. In November, on the 8th, Gary Cross, Civil War uh, Licensed Battlefield Guide at Gettysburg, promises to be with us. We've had two cancellations through medical events or others in the past. This one's going to happen. Gordon Ray returns to the show with the final volume of his multi-volume work on the Overland Campaign. This is on to Petersburg, Grant and Lee, June 4th through the 15th, 1864. And after Thanksgiving, two more shows. Andy Wosky of Philadelphia will be back to talk about that city during the war. And in December on the 6th, Sam Elliott has a book about John C. Brown of Tennessee, Rebel, Redeemer, and Railroader. All interesting stuff. Please join us for all of them if you can. And one more calendar item to note, uh, not too early to start planning. Next February, the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, headquartered in New Orleans, is going to put on their first military history symposium. It'll start on Saturday, February 24th, run through the following Saturday, March 3rd. There will be a day of pre-Civil War presentations, revolution, Lewis and Clark, War of 1812, of course, the Battle of New Orleans and that battle. Then two days of Civil War talks. I'll be giving uh, some of the talks that time. Mark Bielski, Jack Mountcastle will also be presenting. And we'll visit Confederate Memorial Hall, Forts Jackson and St. Philip, uh, nearby plantations. Lots to do on those two days, plus Civil War presentations. 
and then two days of World War One, World War Two uh, coverage. I probably won't be able to stay for those. I have to get back and work for the taxpayers of North Carolina. But you can stay through those days, uh, going all the way to Saturday, March third, with the possible it says post tour extension ride on a PT boat. I would stay for that if I didn't have the day job. So check out uh, Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours online. Learn about this interesting uh, first-time experience, uh, Military History Symposium, including talks on the Civil War. I'll be doing some of them. Would love to see you there. So lots going on. There's more. We'll save the rest for other days and get on to our fascinating story tonight. The amazing story of Robert Small's escape from slavery to Union hero. That's the subtitle, the main title, Be Free or Die. No middle ground there. Let's find out about this from the book's author, Kate Lineberry. And Kate, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Well, Welcome to the show. I, may I call you Kate? We haven't been officially introduced. Is that okay? Oh, yes, absolutely. Please. Course. And, and please call me Jerry. Uh, okay. Well, thank you for thank having you. me on the show. And thank you for for agreeing to be on the show. This um, uh, you're not full time Civil War writer. It says in the back of the book, uh, journalist. Uh, you've written uh, for National Geographic's web editor for Smithsonian. Um, and so you live in Raleigh. Oh, you're right down the street from us here in Greenville. Yes, yeah, uh, exactly. Oh. We were just there uh, yesterday, yesterday, two days ago, looking at uh, okay. kitchen supply uh, uh, renovation places because you have better oh. stores in Raleigh than we have in Greenville. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, let's move on from that. Uh, what got you to writing about Robert Smalls? How did you find out about this story? or What, what moved you to tell this story? Yeah, um, well, I, as you said, I w- wrote for National Geographic. I was a staff uh, writer for them for many years, and then uh, I was a web editor for Smithsonian, so I was very interested in history and culture. And this is my second book. My first book was a World War II story about um, medics and nurses who um, uh, crashed behind uh, Nazi lines in Albania um, during World War II. And I was looking for my second book idea, and my brother actually sent me an article, a short little biography of Small. And um, I had written for the New York Times Civil War blog Disunion and um, had done enough work on the Civil War that I thought surely I would have heard of him. Um, and I was amazed that I hadn't, and the more I read about him, the more I wanted to know um, his story. He's just been overlooked for a long time. I think that's starting to change, but... Um, I was really intrigued. How could I have not heard of this um, incredible man and his accomplishment? It, it really is an incredible story. And when one reads it, you, you have that same reaction. As I said in the introduction, uh, most of us have, have heard of the Andrews Raiders, the great locomotive chase. Disney made a movie about it. Right. Uh, but there, there, there's no movie about the great boat chase. Uh, maybe that will change in, in time. Uh, yeah, that would be oh, nice. Let, hey, screenplay opportunity here. I like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, let, let's. We're going to take a break in just a couple of minutes. So, but I want to get started with the the main story itself. How how does a an enslaved person steal a Confederate Navy vessel? Uh, what was the plan? 
Yeah, well, um, Smalls had a very ingenious plan, but it was also very dangerous. He um, he was working as a slave on a Confederate uh, vessel in Charleston Harbor um, when um, a new captain had come on board, and he tended to wear a very large straw hat. And one day, some of the other crew were teasing him that if he put on the hat, he would look like the captain. And a light bulb kind of went off for him, and he thought, you know, maybe if we... Um, did it at the right time of day where the light was just right, uh, I could pass for the captain, um, a white captain, and um, actually take the ship out to the harbor to the Union fleet, which was about 10 miles away, as part of the Union blockade of all southern ports. It was quite a uh, daring feat to to attempt. Well, clearly, uh, as as a a slave, you obviously would have been in in deep trouble had he been caught, but he was familiar with the boat. He he, he had uh, sailed on it. I mean, he, he was part of the crew. Uh, yeah, he was actually, um, they wouldn't give the title of pilot to a slave, and so he was actually the, dubbed the wheelman for the boat, but he was um, incredibly um, good at navigation and had great skills on the water, and, um, and he had the trust of the other men, which was a big deal because even... Talking about escaping, obviously, was incredibly dangerous in Confederate Charleston. And he was not only taking himself and his crew out, but he was also planning on saving his family, um, who were also enslaved. And how many members were in his family that he was going to take? He ended up, um, he took his wife and two children, um, a a four-year-old and an infant. And then he also, his wife had had a daughter um, who was a teenager from another relationship before they met. And she was on board as well. So this was not a spur-of-the-moment thing. He had to plan to get all these people involved, the other crew members, the family members. Uh, The chance of somebody spilling the beans must have been enormous. Absolutely. And in fact, they decided, um, of course, Robert's wife, Hannah, knew uh, of the plan, but the other men were told not to say anything to anyone um, because of the fear of of being uh, discovered beforehand. And so actually, they, um, the other women who joined them that night, there were a few um, who, we don't know exactly how they're related to the crew, but likely friends or family members were told the night that they came down to the ship um, to visit, and they were really anxious to get back because there was a slave curfew, and of course, many slave families did not live together, um, which was part of the reason they had to plan so far in advance, and that's when they told them, you're actually not going, we're planning on uh, seizing this Confederate ship tonight, a 147-foot steamer, and sailing it through the heavily fortified Charleston Harbor, um, past Fort Sumter, and... Um, hopefully we won't get blown up by the um, Union ships that we are heading towards because it's going to look like a Confederate ship's coming at them. So it was um, it was incredibly dangerous, and the li- the likelihood of them succeeding and through so many obstacles was was very slim. Well, it really is a, a remarkable story how this worked. We're going to take a short break. We're talking today with Kate Lineberry, author of Be Free or Die, the amazing story of Robert Small's escape from slavery to Union hero. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Kate Lineberry, author of Be Free or Die, The Amazing Story of Robert Small's Escape from Slavery to Union Hero, We talked in the first segment about the remarkable plan that Smalls came up with. He was uh, the boat pilot on a Confederate steamer in Charleston Harbor and figured out he looked enough like the captain. He might be able to disguise himself, play the captain's role, and sail the ship out of the harbor. Uh, But, Kate, to do that, uh, presumably he's enslaved along with the other crew members, but there there are Confederate officers or uh, other uh, people in charge of the boat who are not going to let this happen. How, how does, how did they get them out of the picture? Right. Well, that was a critical part of the plan. Um, the captain, the new captain who resembled Smalls in the fact that he was stocky and wore this hat, uh, which would cover up Smalls' face um, when he was impersonating him, also had a habit of leaving the crew, um, the boat in the crew's hands at night, the enslaved crew's hands, which was in direct violation of Confederate orders. But he and his other two um, shipmates wanted to spend time with their families in Charleston, in the town of Charleston. And I think while they may have trusted their enslaved crew, I think it was more likely that they did not think them capable of figuring out a way of commandeering the ship and getting out out of the harbor. But uh, part of what Smalls, when Smalls was making his decision of when they were going to choose, you know, that was critical, um, what night was their best opportunity. Um, He picked a night where he knew that the crew members were going to be leaving the boat in their hands it was also a night before uh, Charleston, um, they were going to impose martial law in Charleston. And so I think that was a big factor because obviously security would be a lot tighter then. Um, and they also had guns on board that they had been uh, moving from one part of Charleston Harbor to another 
Um, and so Smalls thought, not only can I deliver this massive steamer to the Union, which they were in huge demand at that point, um, but we can also give them well-needed um, guns and, and deliver those, and that's what he did. Um, it was truly remarkable, not only that he delivered the boats, but he also delivered these guns that were desperately needed. Now, I was interested, I was unaware that this was not the first time something sort of like this had happened, that a barge had been floated out uh, earlier. Yeah, just a How did that happen? Weeks be- yeah, just a couple weeks before, um, there was General Ripley was um, in charge at uh, the the Confederates in Charleston at the time, and in fact, uh, the planter was moored right next to the, um, his headquarters at the time. So not only did they take a Confederate ship, but they took it directly uh, in front of the general's headquarters. But that uh, general had had a barge taken by um, a group of slaves um, a few weeks before, and that could have, we don't know for sure, but that certainly could have given Smalls the idea or made him think that it was um, capable. Of course, they just took that barge to the Union fleet and saved themselves. They weren't delivering a well-equipped steamer as well as the um, guns uh, when they arrived. And that was something that the fact that there were, um, the Union fleet was at a lot of southern ports blockading them, um, it was common for um, slaves to sometimes try to reach those ships in whatever way they could, because once they reached the Union, they were free, um, you know, in all but name. They were technically considered contraband, but they were, in their minds, they were now free. Right. That, that would certain, certainly change their status. They saw the Union flag as symbol of sanctuary, so they would try Absolutely. to get away. Oh, that... Um, so they, they had to slip past the planter is the name of the ship uh, that yeah. mm-hmm. Smalls stole, and they had to sail literally under the walls of Fort Sumter, which, of course, the Confederacy occupied now, uh, having driven out the Union garrison in 1861. Right. So there had somebody gotten wind that, that they looked closely enough and figured out, hey, that's not the captain, that's some unauthorized person, uh, they, they could have turned 50 artillery pieces on the planter and, and, and blown it up. Uh, it, was, Easily, it was really... Absolutely. And in fact, you know, Robert Smalls was totally aware of the, um, you know, chances of them of that happening were pretty great. And they had all decided, um, including his wife, um, that if if it looked like they were going to be, if their ship was attacked and it looked like they weren't um, going to be captured if they weren't killed immediately, then they were going to all hold hands and jump overboard because to them it was so uh, much better to be free in death than in slavery. They refused to go back to slavery. You know, hence the title, Be Free or Die, as, as you quote Smalls saying. So there were... There now you, you report they almost were accosted at Fort Sumter. They 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 just got by. How did that work out? Yeah, well, they were. I mean, the entire way, uh, the entire journey. You know, Charleston was one of them. It was well fortified harbors um, in the country at the time, and so the entire journey they were incredibly tense and just and just waiting for um, the signal um, that that they were being attacked or somebody was suspicious. But um, when they got to Fort Sumter, they had to know the right code um, to flash and uh, to signal with the whistle. And, of course, Robert knew that because he was working on board this 
um, Confederate vessel, and they would sometimes do reconnaissance missions outside of the harbor. So um, he knew the appropriate signal, and that's how he was able to get past. Uh, just the the image of him slipping by with this big hat shading his face so they don't see him, and it, it's dark in the morning still, and uh, just thinking, you know, so long, suckers. <laughs> we, we've got your right. steamboat here. Uh, I visited Fort Sumter once while uh, accompanying a, a a group on a, a coastal cruise. It was a Harvard Alumni Association group, and I was invited to be their uh, their guest historian on the way. And as listeners to the show know, I will miss no opportunity to remind people that I have a degree from Harvard University, and uh, and here I am at <laughs> East Carolina. You should be proud of that. Yeah. I, it, I, I, it, it gets me. Uh, I'm not sure what it gets me, but uh, but there I was talking to, and, and so we were riding a, a boat out to Fort Sumter, and uh, as you know, and as listeners, if you've been there, you know you have to, uh, the Park Service supplies a boat, you go out and right. uh, visit the fort, and we had a, uh, a, the group had hired a local guide who was giving us the, the tour, and I was just the guest historian with the group, it wasn't my job to give the tour or to make the local guide look bad, but he was getting all lost causey on us and uh, t- telling us all kinds of things. And as a historian, I don't want to embarrass him or, 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 or be confrontational. That's, that's not a good public historian role to play. So when he asked for any questions, I, I said very innocently, could you tell, wasn't there a story about a ship called the Planter? Could you tell us that? And to his credit, <laughs> he knew the story and told it very well, but he had to tell the story of the Confederates looking like fools while they're enslaved pilot takes the boat out while they're sleeping on shore and you picture them getting up in the morning standing on the dock jumping up and down and going dag nabbit there goes my boat uh it is it's one of the best stories uh, of the war it seems to me well but, i think they, there certainly was i'm sorry go ahead no 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 please. Go, well, I go. think it definitely was a source of, of huge embarrassment for the Confederates. And they, they finally realized, you know, once the, uh, Robert Smalls directed the ship towards the Union fleet instead of um, t- more towards Morris Island, which would be the normal route, they realized something's wrong. And they did actually um, try to communicate for um, the Confederates uh, nearby to try to attack. But at that point, the ship was um, out of range. So um, I think Robert was incredibly brilliant and incredibly daring, and then he also had that little bit of luck with them um, that helped him make it through. And, and as you say, it wasn't over yet. They had to approach the Union fleet in a Confederate Absolutely. warship without getting fired on. How did they do that? Well, that that threat was actually more of a worry for Smalls than uh, he would later say than getting through the harbor um, because, uh, you know, it was at the time when, um, you know, it's just such a threat for them to be seeing this Confederate ship on the way. And so they had devised a plan to immediately take down the Confederate flag that they were flying as soon as they passed Fort Sumter and hoist a white bedsheet. And so... um, a fog had descended a bit, further blocking the view of the Union, and so they really were not sure what was going to happen. And in fact, the Union did see them, did not see the flags, and had prepared to fire on the ship. But just at the last minute, um, the captain of of the Onward uh, saw the white flag and and said, "Halt! You know, let's stop." Um, it was it was a very close call. 
So now Smalls and his crew have brought the ship to the Union blockading force that's standing outside the harbor. Uh, and if, if people know anything about uh, Robert Smalls and the planter. You know, it's a, it is a great story. I had come across it before, but the book is just getting started. He has a remarkable career after this. Um, what 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 do the what does the Union Navy do with this guy who's brought them the boat, and what do they do with the boat? Yeah, they. Um, well, I think first they're incredulous that that this um, illiterate enslaved man is delivering this boat. Um, and he, you know, word got out immediately, and that's when Smalls kind of became this Union hero in the North. But the Union decided to take him um, to Port Royal to meet uh, Samuel DuPont, Admiral Samuel DuPont. And DuPont decided, you know, I need this guy. I need his skills at navigating these, um, you know, the South Carolina waterways. And uh, if Smalls had enlisted at that point, um, former slaves were only allowed to enlist as um, the rank of boy, and that's actually what some of the crew members um, were enlisted as, Uh, but DuPont wanted him working as a boat pilot, and so he hired him as a civilian boat pilot and uh, wanted to put him to work immediately, um, helping deliver troops and supplies and um, everything else around the harbor and and into Port Royal, which was the Union headquarters um, near Beaufort, South Carolina. So he was immediately put to use, and just a few months later, a... um, he just he ended up becoming a spokesperson for uh, the Port Royal experiment, which was um, an effort by the Union to figure out what to do with the 10,000 slaves that had been left behind when the Union attacked uh, Port Royal close to Charleston. Um, they were not expecting the whites to flee, and the whites fled there, left their uh, slaves behind, and so suddenly... Um, that area, Port Royal, was dealing with a lot of people, hungry people that needed food and clothing and had never been allowed to fend for themselves. And so Smalls was this hero in the country, and he was quickly asked to um, go on a speaking tour in the north. Um, so it's it's really remarkable when you think that just a couple months before, he's, you know, illiterate, enslaved, um, had never been past Beaufort or Charleston, and now suddenly he's going on a speaking tour in the north. And he, I mean, he meets with the president. He meets with cabinet members. Uh, he, he's, he's trying to raise funds for this South Sea Islands experiment, which is itself a, a remarkable story. All these right people, they do know how to raise food. They do know how to to farm. They're the ones who actually do the farming. Uh, they don't just sit on the veranda all day. So they they know what to do. But as you say, they've never had this opportunity, and it's not technically their land. They're not sure what's going to happen. And the Army had used a lot of the food for their own men, so they were, you know, the food was not there anymore, um, mm-hmm. so they were really struggling to survive. So the, uh, so Smalls becomes, you know, a part of the South Sea uh, Islands experiment. There are, uh, he also, he, he maintains this relationship with Admiral DuPont, uh, which I found very interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. he he goes from being the the pilot on board the planter to its captain, which is a really remarkable promotion. How did that come about? Yeah, that was a couple years after, um, or a year or so after um, he was first enlisted as helping as a civilian boat pilot. 
but he was actually um, on the planter and they were under attack and the white captain at the time um, panicked and hid in the coal bunker of the steamer and um, Robert Smalls jumped in and was able to um, steer the ship to safety and uh, of course when the Union heard about this they immediately said let's get rid of the captain and let's give this guy the ship um, to be in charge of and it was um, it was a remarkable uh, promotion at that point for Smalls. Of course, he was still a civilian captain, but um, to have an African American in the U.S. Army, it was an Army ship, not a, a Navy ship at the time. Um, that it was just a huge, a huge uh, testament to how much they believed in him and how much they thought of him. It it is. Uh there's so many interplays here. DuPont, uh, the admiral's involved in this. So is General Rufus uh, Saxton, who's right in in charge of the Port Royal experiment. He also thinks highly of Smalls. They're both, uh, and and after this expedition where Smalls rescues the ship because the the captain won't do it, now he's now he's got charge of it. But as you say, he, he's not a navy officer. He's not even in the navy. He's he's not. Neither is he in the army. He's a civilian, but he's commanding right. a ship. It belongs to the army. It, uh, ships in the army put me in mind of the short-lived TV sitcom "Wackiest Ship in the Army," which I had to <laughs> Google it to see if I was the only person who remembered it. Uh, it was only on from 18, 1965 to nineteen sixty-six. Okay. Uh, uh, you look it up sometime. It was not successful, but uh, it was about a World War Two uh, hmm. boat that had army and navy personnel and and. Well, that's a sidetrack, uh, but there, this was not a wacky ship. This was quite a serious one, the planter, and now there's Smalls in charge of it, uh, sailing. And making a very good salary. And, and making money. The, the, yeah. Uh, we're going to take a break, and I'm going to come back and ask you about that, the importance of money in Smalls' life uh, uh, in ways that, that might be surprising. We'll come back and talk about that with our guest, Kate Lineberry, author of Be Free or Die, The Amazing Story of Robert Small's Escape from Slavery to Union Hero. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Kate Lineberry, author of Be Free or Die, the amazing story of Robert Small's escape from slavery to Union hero. We were talking in the first two segments about how Small's masterminded the capture of a Confederate Navy vessel, sailed it out of Charleston Harbor. He had been the pilot. Uh, the de facto pilot of the ship, and when the captain wasn't aboard, he sailed it away, delivered it to the Union, and then eventually became the captain of the, the ship himself, uh, which made him more money than if he were just uh, an enlisted sailor or soldier. One of the uh, important things about money in Small's life, uh, it, it, as you write, is that while he was still in slavery, he tried to buy his own uh, wife and child from their owner. How how does a slave buy another slave? Yeah, it was definitely something that was technically against the law, but it was um, he would have needed the help of some influential white uh, citizens, I'm sure, to help him set this up. But his um, owner, which is a hard word to say um, about a person, mm-hmm. but his owner was Henry McKee, and Henry McKee had always um, fought for small, so he very well may have been um, influenced, but uh, Robert decided uh, when he wasn't sure how he was going to escape with his family, he was determined he was going to to buy them out of freedom. And and there were uh, many Black um, Americans in Charleston that were actually free that often bought um, enslaved family members um, to get them. Technically, they were still slaves, but they were essentially free from the white masters. Um, and so Smalls had gone to Hannah's owner, uh, Mr. Ferguson, and um, negotiated a deal for um, if he could accumulate $800, he would be able to buy his wife and his daughter's freedom. Um, they had not yet had their son. And, um, you know, Smalls and Hannah, um, his wife, were very um, uh, strong people and determined people, and they were making money um, in odd ways. Hannah was selling um in doing odd jobs, Hannah was selling uh, fruit and other things on the dock, and um, Smalls was able to negotiate with his owner, um, uh, being allowed to keep a portion of his um, of the amount that his owner McKee would make from hiring him out to this Confederate, Confederate vessel. So Smalls was making a dollar a month from that, but obviously it would take a long time to get to eight hundred, and so he and Hannah were doing um, anything they could to make money. Um, he was determined to get them out of out of slavery. Of course, this opportunity with the planner presented itself, and, and he never w- had to go through with that. But they had managed to save about $700, which I think just says how determined they were. Uh, it just one ballpark way to figure values that I've used in class is to add two zeros. Uh, so you're talking maybe you know $80,000. Uh, mm, to raise right. uh, that that that's a lot of money for somebody in, in that circumstance to save up. It'd be tough to save up that much equity for a house today uh, if you can't get a loan. So uh, 
One thing it sort of passed over in so many interesting things that Smalls does, uh, he participated in the the Battle of Charleston. Uh, the listeners may recall in April 1863, the Union Navy tried to take Charleston uh, on their own without the Army's cooperation. This was not Admiral DuPont's idea, but he was in charge of it. Uh, how did that go? Not well. Um, in <laughs> fact, uh, Smalls was in charge of piloting the Keokuk, um, and uh, they were attacked, and the entire um, effort was a disaster from the beginning through no fault of Smalls, but, um, but it was the downfall of, of Admiral DuPont for sure. Um, it, was, it was not successful. They, you know, were uh, outgunned and, and, um, and sort of went with their tail between their legs home. Uh, it was a very disappointing um, time for them. I mean, Charleston was really the capital, you know, the heart of the Confederacy, the spiritual capital in many ways. And so even though Charleston was not a strategic um, port to capture necessarily, it was so such a um, uh, an important uh, object for the Union to go after for, for morale. Um, they thought if they could destroy Charleston, they would destroy the Confederacy's um, spirit. The thing about the attack, too, is that the Union Navy administration, uh, Fox and Wells back in Washington, thought that the, the ironclads could beat anything. Right. That, that Just send a couple ironclads in to monitor designs or the new ironsides or other ironclad ships, and that they, they could just sail in without, they could just sail in, in a circle without even firing. Uh, they'd just be immune, and of course, they, they highly overestimated the new technology, and, and the Union vessels were seriously damaged, if not uh, sunk outright. But, but Smalls was there. Uh, he participated in that. Going back to the money issue, I found it highly ironic that he ended up buying uh, the house that he was once held a slave in. Yeah, that's one of the my favorite parts of his whole story is that so once he became a captain was making I mean he was making money as soon as DuPont hired him as a civilian boat pilot, but of course the higher his rank the more money he made. So he was making a good salary. Um and then he had also been awarded um money for it wasn't much, but he was awarded money for turning over the planter um to the union. So with that money, um he was able to uh, by the home that he and his mother had uh, been enslaved in, um, as ha- they worked as house servants in Beaufort, um, South Carolina. He was he lived there from uh, he was born in the slave house behind this um, large white uh, house and lived there until he was twelve, until he was sent to Charleston, um, where he was hired out for work, which was a common practice at the time, and and that's where he ended up eventually becoming a deckhand on the planner. Um, but it was, you know, because all the whites had left Beaufort when the Union had come in in November 1861 and attacked, um, the government went after some of the homes for failure to pay taxes. And so that it was up for, the house was up for um, part of a tax sale. And, uh, you know, it's just such poetic justice in a way for him to be able to um, move his family in there and... Um, you know, I can't imagine what that feeling must have been like the first time he opened those doors. As the owner and not not as right. part of the property. Now, the exactly. uh, so the, they bought the house, as you say, it was essentially a tax sale. All the 
the former owners having fled and, and failed to uh, maintain or pay the taxes on the house, the government seizes it, sells it to those who will pay, and, and Smalls is able to buy it. Uh, as you describe in the book, many wartime property transfers, uh, those that Sherman authorized under Special Orders 15 outside of Savannah, a lot of the Sea Islands uh, uh, property that was taken over and inhabited by the, the enslaved people who'd lived there all that time. Under Andrew Johnson's presidency after the war, they all are forced to give it back to its, their former white owners. How about Small's house? What happened there? Yeah, um, interestingly enough, um, when he was 12 and, and Henry McKee, his owner, um, sent Smalls to Charleston, he actually sold that house to a man named William de Treville. And um, de Treville wanted his house back after the war, and, and he, um, you know, went to court to try to get it back. And it was a test case um, that actually affected many properties in the South. Um, and the case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, but... Uh, in 1878, the court did uphold Small's title. Um, it was a ruling that actually helped many people keep their homes who had been able to purchase during that time period um, during the war. So, so we see it, Small's just keeps popping up in these, these critical moments, and here he is at the Supreme Court uh, able to keep the, the house. Uh, he was present also at the, the very end of the war at uh, the raising of the Union flag at Fort Sumter. Can right. Can you say something about that event? Yeah, it was a really emotional um, time for him. Of course, he um, ended up um, taking the planter as part of a, um, they were all, there was, it was a grand celebration, and they had um, a lot of steamers packed with people. Um, people had come from the north to get on these boats and go out to Fort Sumter as part of this uh, ceremony. And um, Smalls was allowed to um, fill the planter with former slaves. And it must have been um, such a, an emotional um, experience for him to be going right back to Fort Sumter, where he had been just a few years before, uh, you know, fleeing in the middle of the night, uh, wondering if he was going to get blown away by Confederate uh, forces at any moment. Um, but here he was, and... Um, kind of a, an embarrassing moment for him, but when he, I think he was so excited when he pulled the uh, steamer into the um, docks there that they had just created that um, it actually got stuck. And so um, in order for him to get the planner out, he needed some help, but he didn't miss the ceremony. And, um, you know, he was, he, he, he sort of was in the middle of everything. You know, he had grown up in Beaufort where, um, the Union came in in, in November 1861, and that was one of their um, places where they had their headquarters, and then he went to Charleston, and that was so much the spiritual capital of the Confederacy, and, you know, he was he was always in this, these strategic locations, it seems, and that was what also drew me to the story, because I felt like he, through Smalls, you can learn so much about the war as well. And not just the war in the South, but in the North, uh, as you mentioned earlier, he, he traveled north on a, uh, a speaking tour, and then he later took the planter north to, to be refitted. And he encountered, uh, in some ways, uh, as much hostility in the north as he did in, well, it's not fair to say as much, but he certainly encountered hostility in the north, uh, uh, even though he was a Union war hero. 
Absolutely. And in fact, um, people got wind of what happened. He was trying to go check on the planter um, and see how the repairs were going. And um, he boarded a um, car, a um, the the street a car in car, Philadelphia. Sorry, a yeah. street car. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And um, boarded a street car, and he was not allowed to stay on. And in fact, he was told um, that he would have to ride on the outside of the car, and, and he refused. Um, and he asked if it was um, illegal for him to stay on, and and uh, they said yes, and and that was at the time. Um, and he was able to. Um, he decided to step off, and uh, and the white. Um, uh, crew member that was with him decided to leave as well in support of Smalls, but people got wind of this, and um, it actually helped rally people to the cause of fighting um, the segregation of the streetcars in uh, Philadelphia at the time. Um, they couldn't believe that a war hero like Smalls was actually not able to ride on the streetcars after, you know, these so many of these soldiers were sacrificing their lives, and and putting themselves in danger like Smalls had, and, and they were not allowed to um, travel on public transportation. So yet again, the, here he was kind of as a central point and a, an important point in, in the history at that time. He is uh, Zelig, like, uh, always in the right place uh, for something to happen. Right. Um, the, uh, the, the one sort of coded to the story that I found uh, amusing was that uh, the war being over, uh, uh, Mr. Ferguson, the Confederate ship owner who had leased the planter to the Confederate Navy, uh, now that the war is over, uh, wanted his boat back. Mm-hmm. That, that, uh, that, well, there was a line you quoted, I think, from one of the newspapers that said, whatever else this man has lost in the war, he still has plenty of cheek. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it said it was like a burglar. You know, you're out of jail now. He sues the government. I want my burglar tools back. Exactly. Uh, yeah. It was he pretty, didn't get uh, it, did he? Um, actually, he did get it. Um, he uh, was able to get the planter back, and um, you know, he had tried um, unsuccessfully right after the war when they were putting the ship up for auction, but people figured it out. But he was eventually able to find someone who, um, when the ship was first put up for auction in Charleston, and then it eventually went to Baltimore because um, there were no bids that were high enough. When it went to Baltimore, um, Ferguson was able to get someone else to go in for him and put the bid in, and and it was successful. Um, but that didn't stop Smalls. You know, he continued to do amazing things throughout his life, and the Civil War was just his launching point. So um, he certainly, I don't think, viewed it as a defeat. Um, when he later learned, uh, many years later, that the planter had sunk um, while in operation, he said it was uh, as if he was losing a family member. So I'm sure it was somewhat painful for him to know that the planter was back in the hands of Ferguson. But um, but at that point, I think he was just probably very happy that the, the war was over. Well, the war ends. It does not end Small's career. Uh, as you mentioned, in the, uh, at the end, he goes on to be one of the first African-Americans elected to Congress, serves many terms there, uh, is, is a national figure, participates in Reconstruction from the, that angle. Uh, it's just, it is really a, an amazing story, as the subtitle says. And uh, if we had more time, we could talk more about it. Unfortunately, we don't. 
so listeners, if you want to know about the amazing story of Robert Smalls, read Be Free or Die by Kate Lineberry, who's been our guest tonight. Kate, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. (laughs) 